I'm Celine Williams, and welcome to the Leading Through Crisis podcast, a conversation series exploring resiliency and leadership in challenging times. My guest today is Sarah Olivieri, who is a business leadership coach and strategist who has a passion for helping organizations thrive. She is also a number one international best-selling author. Welcome, Sarah. It's really great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you for a number of reasons. Um, I'm really lucky with the guests I get to have on this show. But before we jump into all of that, I do want to ask the question I start every one of these episodes off with, which is the name of the podcast is Leading Through Crisis. When you hear that phrase, what comes up for you or what does that mean for you? Well, to, you know, I have to say when this podcast was coming up in my calendar and I saw that topic, I had like the mini crisis process happen in front of me, which is like, oh my God, that's not my topic. And then wait, let me just check if that's the name of the podcast or if that's the topic. And then I was like, oh, that's the name of the podcast. And then I was like, well, wait a second. I deal with crisis all the time as a leader myself and as a coach of other leaders. And I have processes for dealing with crises and how to get out of crisis. And immediately I was then out of that temporary crisis moment. So I think, you know, that when I think about the word crisis or what is a crisis, which I had to as I had that moment, um, it's like sudden change that is brings challenge with it. Mm-hmm. And for me, leading through crisis is about how can, and there's often a lot of fear. It's like an emotional word, crisis. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we can take it out of the realm of fear and total disorder and bring it back into the realm of knowing what pieces we can control and we can like have that fear reaction come way down, then you might be dealing with a challenging situation, but you probably don't feel crisis anymore. Um, and so in, I think the first reaction in hearing it is, oh, this is a thing. But really in thinking through it again, I was like, oh, this is a feeling. Crisis is more of a feeling that's brought on by the sudden, sudden bad change usually. I love that you, I love how you phrase that because on, you know, one of the, on the website for this podcast, the sub phrase, that's not the right word, but whatever, we're going to leave that is a leader, a conversation series about leadership in challenging times. And that's there specifically because crisis is, and I agree, like the, emo, I, I love the way you put that about the feeling about it, but that's really what it is. It's change, challenge. These are constant. By that, you know, if you think of it that way, then crisis ends up being constant if we have feelings attached to it, which is like, unsurprisingly, leaders and humans are going to have feelings attached to change and challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, when, you know, kind of diving right in to one of the secrets of leading through crisis is to get the scary feelings out of the change process as soon as possible. As soon as you can make people feel like we're not reacting in fear, all of a sudden everything goes much more easily. <clears throat> so I'm going to ask a question about that because I think that is, I work with, have worked with, a lot of leaders who would not even acknowledge that fear was part of what they were feeling or how they were reacting or whatever the situation was. 
And I think that in certain organizations and certain cultures, you really can't acknowledge or own that because of whatever negative associations they have with the idea of fear, which I mean, people are going to feel fear anyway, so it doesn't make any sense. And that's my own opinion on the whole thing. Um, But with that in mind, how do you even like when you're saying people acknowledging the fear, how if they don't see it, how do you get them to the point to see it, to acknowledge it? And I ask this as you work with leaders, you know, leadership systems, you talked about some of these things. Let's start from the very beginning. How do you get them there? (laughs) Well, I don't think people have to acknowledge that they're acting out of fear in order to be taken into a space where Mm -hmm. they're no longer fearful. But as a leader, one of the things I teach my clients a lot is whenever they enter a meeting, a room, people they're leading or whatever, you don't even have to have like any sort of control or power over them to show up as a leader, the first thing you need to do is read the room. And what I mean by this is, right, just see how people are emotionally. Are they happily chatting with each other? Are they sitting like looking at their phones? You know, what's going on? And, And if you don't have a clear read, ask some questions to help you get a better read. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? Hey, what's going on for you right now, right? Find out what's going on. Do a more formal check-in activity. I like to start meetings off with like a high-low, we call it. So you share a high from your week and a low from your week. And sometimes I will explicitly say, share a personal high-low. If I think there's a lot of outside stuff going on that was coming into the room when we were having a business meeting, this happened Mm. a lot during the pandemic, I'd ask for a personal high-low and then people shared, oh, especially in the beginning, oh, some, you know, my husband just got COVID and, you know, we're dealing with that. And so once we read the room, if people are in an emotional state or really focused on things that aren't the topic of the meeting, the next thing I trained is you don't start the meeting you planned until you've addressed this emotional distraction of your team. And I think you one way to do that because you asked, is listen, listen to people. And or the phrase I really like to be specifically say is make people feel heard. Because you can make people feel heard without actually listening to them. And you can listen to them and still not make them feel heard. But it is the feeling heard that often makes people feel safer and calmer because now they feel like, oh, and and if you can stay calm yourself. So I think part of pre-reading the room, read yourself, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. am I having an emotional reaction to this? Let me, you know, breathe a moment, get that in check, like, and now think through what is this situation and ask that question like I did for myself on my calendar read, right? Like, I was like, oh, I'm reacting. What? But what's really going on here? And if you can ask yourself that question, if you can get emotional awareness for yourself and then say, well, what's really going on here and start to pull apart the pieces, you'll find pieces that you know how to deal with and that are familiar to you. And it'll all get a lot easier. So there's two things that come up for me when you say that, that I want to ask about. The first one is, I think there's a lot of, look, I think emotional awareness is incredibly important. And I think there are many people who cannot name their emotions. They don't actually know what they are feeling inside of each of these moments. 
if that makes sense. Like they get, whether it's, they are, they don't know the name for the emotion. They don't connect how they're feeling to a specific emotion. They, uh, you know, whatever there, I think there's so many layers of this. So the first thing is how, how does one start to, how have you worked with people to start to recognize some of those, um, to, to, and name some of those emotions. Cause I do, like you said, that emotional awareness matters. Yeah. Um, and the second question I have, which kind of goes back to something that you said as part of this is when you, when, and I'm not going to get this wording, right. So I apologize up front, but you had said, you know, someone doesn't need to acknowledge fear to move through fear. Yeah. So if that's the case and they're not aware of the fear, how can you help someone or what, how does someone move through an emotion that they can't name or, or have an awareness of does that make sense i know i'm just gonna ask you all the big questions sarah here you go (laughs) (laughs) and you know i'm thinking here like this is how i learned this and how i learned that and here's a great source so i think you know one is to be a great leader and whether and i'm kind of stumbling on this word a bit right because some leaders are leaders because they're in positions of authority yes and other leaders are not in positions of authority. So I often show up as a leader to the point that like when I'm shopping in the store, people will ask me questions. Other shoppers will ask me questions for my opinion to help guide them in their shopping because I show up as a leader, right? Um, I have no, you know, they're just strangers in the store, right? So to be that kind of leader, to show up and to be able to guide people influence people, support people. These are all different kinds of roles. The leader needs to develop a practice of uh, learning. Like think of yourself, like you got to go to school (laughs) to learn about emotions and really how the brain works. So um, one resource that I think has helped me a lot in learning about how to talk about emotions and teach people about emotions is, um, uh, Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. Um, and it's a little laborious as a system, but the big takeaways are you can print out lists of emotions. <laughs> and it's really important to learn the difference between um, a judgment and an emotion. And of course, now that I've said that, I'm going to have a terrible time coming up with an example. Um, but <laughs> Um, I laugh because I, I would be the exact same way. I'd be like, I remember this thing. And oh, no. Yep. That's a really good example. It'll come to me. So, um, but we attribute things to people. We say a lot of things that are kind of judgmental of, mm-hmm. a, of people rather than describing their emotions in a totally non-judgmental way. And Marshall Rosenberg is really good at that. Asking, you know, asking questions and not um, at one one of the pieces of language he talks about is rather than say you made me feel upset, the reality is you can't make me feel anything. My feelings are generated inside my body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have no, you know, you may influence that, but you can't force me to feel a certain way. So change your language. Say I felt this way when you said mm-hmm. this other thing, and this is just like. Any skill, this is something you can practice. If you hear, and I do it with my kid all the time, right? He says like, oh, you made me so upset today. (laughs) You know, it's like you feel upset 
Um, but, you know, and maybe some of my actions were things that you didn't like, but you, your emotions are inside your body. So kind of lesson number one is recognize all your emotions are controlled inside your body and you can gain control over them. And one of, well, different people have different degrees of ability to gain control. Um, but meditation, there's many forms of meditation, but I think the basic benefit to me of meditation is it helps kind of rewire your brain, if you will, so that you can feel what's going on inside your body and inside your brain, almost get it like a clearer outside lens so that you can go, oh, I'm feeling. And oh, maybe you can create a little space between when you feel it and when you react. Mm -hmm. And if you can slow down that timeline a little, which I think meditation is really good at, then you have a moment to acknowledge and realize what you're feeling before you react. And when you can do that, and that takes practice, it's not like an instant thing. When you can start to do that, you gain this control over your behavior that becomes very, very powerful as a leader in, in helping other people. Because if you can show up and um, either not be, you can be afraid, right? I, they're not telling anybody, don't be afraid. I'm saying, don't react from the fear, right? Mm -hmm. You can then exist. I feel afraid, but there's other things going on and my fear is not going to help me, but something else will help me. <laughs> and let me, let me focus on that. So it's really about have the emotions, certainly don't deny yourself, but don't let them be the generator of your behavior, mm. especially if you're trying to get something done in a group. So I probably answered a few of those questions, but not all of them. No, you absolutely did. And it's, I mean, I'm not married to my own questions by any stretch of the imagination. So you did. Uh, and more importantly, you sparked more curiosity in me, which is always the most fun part of this. So one of the things that um, I appreciate what you were saying about, you know, the distance between feeling an emotion and reacting and, and I've probably said this on this podcast, I'm, anyone who listens to this is like, you always say the same thing, Celine, I have no doubt. So I've probably said this here before, but one of the things that I say all of the time in real life with clients, probably here in general, is that we, we're not responsible for that initial feeling or thought that comes up in our head, right? That like, I hate this, this sucks, what, you know? fear or whatever. We're not responsible for that. That's our body telling us something that's information and data. And that's important. However, after we feel or think that we are responsible for everything else that happens. Yeah. And we have a choice, even if we don't want to think we do. And if that is constructive or destructive. And to me, that's the real, like, that's what I hear inside of what you're saying is I'm phrasing it a different way, but like, let's, get really clear on what's going to benefit what I can do that is serving me or the people around me or however you want to think about it and not just operate with the under the uh, idea that the feeling is this thing that exists outside of me that controls me in these ways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when you recognize that you then can see what's going on for other people. And so if you see them reacting from their emotions, you don't have to then, you don't have to carry on reacting upon their reaction. You can just go, oh, this person is having an emotion and it's causing a reaction. 
let's just address the situation, change that state so they're no longer reacting to their emotion and then proceed. Um, and I'm remembering one of the things I thought when you asked the previous question is um, the book Thinking Fast and Slow, which mm. is a very long read, but I think it's an, <laughs> it's an important one um, to get the concept from. But basically, that's like the science behind we have part of our brain that reacts very quickly and part of our brain that reacts slowly. That's literally why it's like thinking fast and thinking slow. And um, the more analytical part of our brain is the part that thinks it's not just slow, but it comes second. So we usually have this quick reaction um, and it's good for some things and not good for a lot of things in business <laughs> or leadership. Um, and so we have to wait for that slow brain to kick in. But that's a great resource for learning about how the brain's actually working in decision making. Um and I had something else, but I've forgotten it now. So we'll carry on. <laughs> no, it's, I, that's it's when you said thinking fast or slow, I laughed because it is a great book and it is written like a textbook and I have read it and uh, it's, it was painful to get through, but the information is so valuable. <laughs> so I always hope people will read it. And, and when I decided to read it, I'd read a review of it that said, it is really long, but you can either read these three other books or you can read this one book. And I was like, well, I'll just read the long source material because the three books are going to be just as much in the end. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I took my time, but I did it. That's a smart, that's a smart way to approach <laughs> any of his books. And I say this with much respect because the man is brilliant, but any, any of his books need to be approached with time for sure. Yes. yes. Um. So uh, this you know, I think I brought this up and you may have brought it up as well inside of what we were talking about. And, and I say this because I know one of your areas of expertise and I have no doubt there are many, but is this idea of leadership systems. And even inside of some of how you've approached these answers, there's a thoughtfulness and approach that I think is likely, and I say this just as an observation, I'm not saying it's the truth, but is likely part and parcel due to how you think about systems in general. So your approach is likely more systematic overall than, I don't know, someone like my brain where it's chaos 90% of the time. So I'm saying that because I'm curious if you can talk to us a little bit about what leadership systems are and you know, how they can benefit, how they can be a detriment, because I'm sure there are many that can also be detrimental, um, and how they help you in what you do, as well as clients, et cetera. But like, let's get into some of this, because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, you definitely picked up on this system part. And it's not just the way my brain works. The way my brain works helps me develop systems, but yes. not everybody has to be able, right? No, no, not everybody has to be able to be a master chef to be a great cook and follow a recipe, mm -hmm. right? So um, don't use my system, my systems working brain to be like, oh, well, I'm not like Sarah. This won't work for me. Um, learning a system is pretty easy, especially if it's a simple system. And then you can train yourself to follow it. And then it becomes a lot easier to use a system as your method of reacting. Um, so like when I was a kid, it was a big um, public awareness campaign to turn off the water while you're brushing your teeth, right? Simple system. 
You learn it with your body and your brain. You put the toothpaste on, you wet your toothbrush, then you turn the water off. Then you keep brushing, you know, and they had to train a lot of people to do this, not just to leave the water. That's a really simple example of a system that many of us have learned and changed our behavior. And we now just follow this system. Um, So, but let's go back to like what a system of leadership is. And it always sounds so foreign and nobody talks about it, except you've all learned it. If I say democracy, do you know what that is? Probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we often use um, systems of leadership labels to talk about governments, but they oh. certainly apply in other ways. So the basic kinds of systems, the general categories, we have oligarchy or um, like monarchy. So basically where there's people who have power and either it's one person or a few people who share power. And these are longstanding systems. You've, you've seen them. You're probably familiar with them. Kings and queens, emperors, that is that whole system. And those systems are really designed, each system kind of style is good for some things and bad for other things. So that kind of system is really good for maintaining the status quo and consolidating power. So if you want a small group of people to have all the power and keep things basically the same, that's the kind of system you want, an oligarchy or a monarchy. It's an authoritarian system. Mm -hmm. Then we have democratic systems, um, which are also very old, right? And that's where we share power by using a voting system. Everybody kind of gets a say, and then we put people in charge at the will of the people, And in the U.S., we have, you know, our checks and balances system. There's different versions of democracy, but they all have the basic concepts. And democracy is where we start to see systems and processes start taking a lead over individuals. So like where we had that, you know, in a monarchy, the king gets to decide (laughs) and or the queen gets to decide. And then there's other levels of people who just get to decide. Um, And they can change the process or do it however they want. Well, in a democracy, we become much more emphasized the processes, right? The election process is really, really important in a democracy. We have all these systems that keep the thing going as people rotate out. So it's very good at um, representing people's needs of a large group. It's quite good at um, maintaining stability, right? Democracies, once you get them going over a couple generations, um, they can stay in place for a very long time because they're not people dependent and you don't get like the wars over power between people (laughs) um, because it's not so much about the people. And then we have leaderless systems, um, which are very, very powerful if you want to achieve an outcome. So, right. So the monarchy is about consolidating power. The democracy is about representing people's needs. And the leaderless systems are about achieving, they're good at achieving outcomes. And they are almost totally about processes and about letting people be flexible too with what processes they use. And if anybody's heard of like Agile or Scrum from the tech world, these are kind of built more on that leaderless system type of model. So hopefully now you're going, oh yeah, I've heard of some leadership systems before. Uh, And I think 
so many of us, our businesses, if you're in business, default to that hierarchical model from the monarchy or the oligarchy because that's how the school system is run. And that's how many family structures are also set up. And so many of us have that model ingrained. We've been, but we've been trained in that model. It's Mm -hmm. not like none of these are like naturally inherent one way or another. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we start using it because it's the one we're most familiar with. Um, I appreciate that explanation. And it's, I'm guessing that there's a number of people who would be listening to this going, oh, I just assumed those were political systems or whatever the length, you know, not necessarily leadership systems. Um, and I, I, you know, I think it's a really important thing to think about is how much those, ex- especially that sort of traditional hierarchical one exists and is socialized into most people, especially in any kind of Western culture as this, and I hate the term Western, but I'm going to, because it's not only English speaking, it's very common in Europe and, you know, you know, parts of South America. I think there's cultures where it's not as common, but Mm -hmm. that is just the accepted norm in so many ways. Yeah, it is. And I love the acknowledgement that you had about school and, and, you know, it just exists because I think it makes people, I think it means that people often don't see them as leadership systems first. And then also say, how can we do anything different? This is how everything's run. Yeah. Yeah. So then you're back up against, right? Change. How do we manage change? And um, I don't love the word manage change. I feel like um, (laughs) change comes about when we have a change moment, Mm -hmm. something that is disruptive enough to kind of create that initial momentum to get the change going. And when I think about, you know, do I want to get something to change? First best avenue is to look for a change moment (laughs) that's already presented itself. The pandemic as horrible it was, was an incredible change moment. And it created an opportunity for people to do things differently. So I was telling my clients as the pandemic hit, yes, this is scary, but hey, we also have a huge opportunity to change up how we run our organizations in a way that we didn't before. And when we don't have a big external change moment, we have to create a change moment. Mm-hmm. The change moments happen. It could be because a leader is changing. Um, you know, it could be somebody died. It could be, you know, a new technology came out. If you have to make your own change, you're going to have to create your own change moment. And it's going to take a lot longer to build up that momentum. But some of us are in that position. I always think there was this YouTube video that went viral once about uh, the first follower did you see there was like this crazy no. guy? Um, so part of like change, you know, what change people who write about change, they talk about sometimes the first follower. So there's the leader who like wants the change to happen, but the most critical piece is that you get the first person to follow the leader. And then once you have the first follower, other people will join in. So there was this great YouTube video that went around for a while. This was a couple of years ago of this like, guy who was like crazy dancing in a field and everyone's just looking at him like, you just a crazy dancer. Like yeah. what's wrong with you? 
until a second guy comes up and starts doing the same crazy dance following that guy. And once the second guy came on, the third and the fourth and the fifth came on really soon. And once there was a group of crazy dancers, all of a sudden they weren't crazy dancers and everyone else joined in in mass <laughs> once yeah. that happened. So, you know, we can get these things going, but we really have to get start bringing people in slowly and get a few people to follow and say, yeah, we're going to go in this direction too. Otherwise, you're just the lone, lone change person. Well, and I, I think it's really interesting. Um, I love the idea of leveraging change moments that you like the pandemic that are outside of our control that happen, you know, to us in some way, shape, around us, affect us, whatever, however we want to think about it. Um, and I think that often people struggle to recognize them in the the pandemic. Aside, I mean, look, I think there's still so many people who don't recognize the opportunity for change that it was and are from the beginning, we're just waiting to quote unquote, get back to normal, which is very frustrating for me personally. I'll fully own it's my personal thing when I hear that and I still hear it and I'm like, so frustrating that the opportunity was missed. But I do think that happens quite often is there is a change moment and people are so resistant to change that even those that want change in some way don't know how to see that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think in that case, having a guide is really helpful, right? Or having a leader who says, hey, this is an opportunity, but you hear that enough times and then you start to absorb it. You know, I think my clients always say, like, we we hear your voice, Sarah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was doing this thing and Sarah's voice said, because I repeated it again and again. And going back to systems, like, how, how do I end up repeating the same thing again and again? Because when I think about how to deal with situations, I think about, okay, what's the basic process, the, the framework that's going to work again and again and again, so that I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel in the middle of a crisis to go back, right? That is not the time <laughs> to be experimenting in crisis. That is the time to pull out the tried and true method for turning a crisis into a non-crisis again and again. And what do I use this basic system? First, you check in with the emotions and you ask what's really going on here, right? Once you get people focused and calm down, what's really going on here? What do we see? What do we know? What do we don't know? gather the data, right? The emotions is part of the data. You said that. I love that you said that earlier. And then once you've gathered the data, then you ask, which things do we have control over and which things do we don't have control over? And then you say, well, we don't have control over. We don't have control over. So we're not going to worry about those things. And we're going to take this smaller set of things that we're familiar with and that we have control over. And we're going to start doing them kind of in most important order, priority order, and we're going to start coming up with solutions as a group. And then we're going to go off and implement those solutions. And then we're going to check back and see how it's working. And then we're going to refine and implement some more. And before you know it, it's resolved. Um, and even better, if you're on the lookout for things coming up, if you get used to that process, you can, like we were just saying, you can avoid the crisis moment almost entirely, or it's like very, very short. And um, skip right to the opportunity that's coming with some disruption rather than the fear and crazy. And, you know, I think there's um, uh, Chicken Little, you know, Chicken Little. Yes. 
know, right? You know, the response, there's a scale of response to crisis. You could be the chicken little end or the, you know, calm, cool, and collected, the MacGyver end, right? MacGyver figures out what to do. Maybe he's a little dated example, but MacGyver does the same thing, right? It's not like MacGyver has everything he needs with him. MacGyver says, okay, well, what do we have around us that we can make work? Yeah. We'll put it together and come up with a solution. So I'd say the more you can train yourself to less chicken little time and scooch on over the MacGyver end of the spectrum, um, you'll be happier and you'll come up with solutions sooner. So I have, I actually want to say something about this, but I just want to acknowledge that I love the scale of chicken little to MacGyver. Just the visual of chicken little to MacGyver makes me so happy. <laughs> I really hope that people start using that scale because it's beautiful. Um, so I did um, inside of, so inside of what you were saying, I got so distracted by the chicken little visual. <laughs> how easy that's how my brain works is I was like oh this is this brings me so much joy um but I want to put on kind of a uh devil's advocate hat for a second and acknowledge something that I you know so first off before I put that on I am a hundred percent on board on let's identify what we can control and let's identify what's out of our control like you, it sounds like this is one of those things that I obsessively talk to people about, whether it's teams or individuals where it's like, let's get really clear on what these things are. And now here's the devil's advocate piece of this. Um, because you have systems, I'm really curious your lens on it is there are often groups, organizations, leaders, whatever, where there are many things out of their control. For example, funding, right? Funding is entirely outside of any public organizations control. I'm picking on public organizations because I, at least here in Canada, because I can, you don't know what your funding is going to be like. And that affects everything. And there are leaders who were like, we just have to wait. We can't do anything. We can't make any plans. We can't make any decisions because we don't, they, it just becomes that like, I take no responsibility. And I'm playing devil's advocate noting that I'm not saying I agree with that, but when that happens, when people acknowledge the things that are out of their control, and it is something like that, and people react that way, what, do, like, what do you say to that? How do you, what do you say to that? Let's start with that, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the first thing that came to mind is um, one of the things I teach is how to set goals. And I sucked at setting goals for a really long time. So I did my typical, let's understand what's going on here and go to the academic deep dive. And what I learned was all goals, there are two types of goals and they're always interrelated. The academics call them um, outcome goals and process goals. Outcome goals are things that are results that are out of your control. And process goals, which I have renamed execution goals because I could never remember them, are things that you can do, things that you can execute on. That's why I call them execution goals. So it's really, really important, even in your goal setting. So if you say, wow, we don't know problem. We don't know what our funding's going to be. Um, and also problem, we need more funding, right? <laughs> so we'd like to know what it is and we'd like to have more of it. Mm -hmm. So 
having more funding, and this is always a tricky, you know, I work with nonprofits, so this is always, it sounds like, oh, we need to fundraise. <laughs> but getting more funding is always really about getting other people to give you their money, whether yep. it's government or private. So that's out of your control. All right, now let's think about the things that are in our control. Let's come up with a list of things that we could do to know when our funding is. Sometimes it's better to, you know, say like, well, if we could just know this certain percentage, we'd be good. And we'll plan on that certain percentage. And then anything extra is a bonus. Um, so n- knowing and predictability is often very valuable to us, but not always. I, when I lived in, we talked about earlier how I've traveled a lot. And when I lived in Africa, I lived with a family and they were pretty well off. The mother worked for um, the president and the father worked for the university and they had a good car. Um, but their system was they would get in the car and they'd go to the gas station and they would only put enough gas in the car for the trip they were taking that day. Not fill up the tank. Okay. And for some like, you know, well, that that seems weird. Why wouldn't you fill up the tank? Like, it seems like a lot of extra trips and, you know, why not just buy the whole thing? They, it wasn't because they couldn't afford it. And then I realized there was a lot of instability. You can't always get parts for a car. You don't know if your car is going to get stolen that day. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. So to the point that it like didn't make practical sense to waste filling up your tank because who knows, somebody could drain your tank and suck all <laughs> siphon all the gas out. Who knows? So in that context, it really didn't make sense. They were dealing with all this impredictability. So their way of controlling it was they only put in the gas they needed for that day, and then they didn't suffer the consequences of the rest of the unpredictability. So we can think about things that make it um, uh, more predictable. What can we know, right? What can we dis- – or maybe we can make a decision. I actually had a client going through this. She's moving a food pantry from one location to another. And the new location, the contracting work, right, is taking longer than expected. Big surprise, right? Mm-hmm. It always takes longer than expected. And she's like, well, if we don't get in by this date that's really close and we only have like a one-day margin of error or like now they were down to like a 12-hour margin of error because concrete had to dry, then I'm going to have to change everything. And she's all anxious waiting up. I was like, why don't you just push to the next date, right? Now you have a 30 window, a 30 day window, right? To be ready. You have a date that you can be sure of. And what's the big problem with that? Well, it costs more because each month they extend, they have to pay for rent in both places. But now we get to the funding part, right? Maybe you don't have control over the government funding, but you do have control over your fundraising activities. You are able to call up your donors, explain what's going on, and make an ask. Is it a guarantee? No. But is it highly likely that because you have a large community support base that they will understand and support you? Yes. And now you'll probably have the money and you're definitely going to be able to schedule everything in a time frame. So we pushed it back, which she was thinking, oh, we can't push it back because it's going to be more expensive. But sometimes having that predictability is worth it. Mm, I love that. And I appreciate you talking through some of that because I I, it makes it real for people who get stuck in that. Um, and I think that, you know, I hear, I, I, I love what you said and what came to mind was another thing you can control is to run, call it a 
uh, as part of your process goals, right? The the ex ex expedition goals. That's not what you said. <laughs> I like that too. Execution, execution. goals. <laughs> um is to even say like okay if we get this funding or this funding or this funding let's come up with three high level plans or whatever to address them Mm -hmm. so that because we can control that having different ideas so that you know when we get the funding or we don't get the funding or whatever that thing is that's out of our control we have risk mitigate we have mitigated a few different approaches to this situation um you know what you're going to do yeah. So I love, I love the examples you gave and I love the different ways of thinking about it. Cause I, I, again, I appreciate it. I think a lot of people get stuck in, well, there's so many things outside of my control. I can't do anything. Do. And I think a lot of people make a lot of assumptions. I do too. We all do. We make assumptions that aren't necessarily helping us. Mm. I had another client recently, she runs a big convention in Hollywood, but it's for student producers and she's a former Hollywood producer and she wanted the event to be of Hollywood standards. And we had this conversation that one, Hollywood standards were driving, they were driving her own standards, were driving her nuts <laughs> because there's all this extra stuff to do to yeah. meet Hollywood event standards. And on top of that, we talked about the mission of her organization is pr- to inspire and train future storytellers. And it was really important to her to involve students. So I said, listen, you make students more involved and that's students would rather see their peers do something pretty good than have a pro Hollywood contractor do something perfectly, right? It is more meaningful. So not only are you making your life more difficult by holding yourself to these standards, they're actually taking away from what you're trying to achieve with this event. Mm. And by lowering your standards and put making it more about, yeah, it's student produced. Maybe we had a few glitches, but it was still really amazing and inspiring. And these are my peers or someone who just graduated, right? My close peer, almost peers, um, is inspiring and exciting. So it's really important, I think, kind of circling back to where we started about being in check with your own emotions also learning to be in check with your own assumptions and expectations that, you know, if, if it isn't like law, they didn't say you can't do it, <laughs> then you pro- you are free to change your own expectations of things. Well, and I would say, even if someone said you can't do it, sometimes you can still do it and it's worth questioning anyways. That's right. Just my two cents on that. Um This has been a pleasure, Sarah. And before we wrap up, because I think you've just uh, there's so much here but i want to give you the opportunity if there's something that we didn't get to or that you want to uh say or emphasize before we wrap up give you the opportunity to speak into that and saying no i think i'm good is also completely acceptable for the record i feel like we covered so much this is probably like a re-listen to but i'd say my number one takeaway for folks if you need the cheat sheet is If you need to start somewhere, start with learning about your own emotions and learning to recognize them because that's probably one of the most rewarding things any human being could do for themselves, not just for business or leadership, but just to feel that you can experience joy and peace in any situation it's so powerful and it can bring you so much happiness. Just that one thing is worth it. I could not agree more. 
Um, thank you for your time, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. There will be links where everyone can find you in the show notes. So uh, for everyone to check that out. And um, I look for, I hope we do this again. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure getting to know you a little bit. Thank you for being so generous with your time and energy and insights. That would be great. Thank you for the wonderful questions and in great listening. <laughs> you are very kind. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the Leading Through Crisis podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a minute to rate and review us on your podcast app. If you're interested in learning more about any of our guests, you can find us online at www.leadingthroughcrisis.ca.